Thank you. So good to be here. Thank you for inviting me to stay on this morning and, and share. We did have a great time yesterday, didn't we? Um, the women who came gave me some good feedback. I think, you know, we shared a few brutal things and some honest things and got ourselves asking different questions and thinking different thoughts, which is always a good and healthy thing to do, I think. This morning, I want to share with you a few thoughts, and it will dovetail very well into the, uh, the, the, the verse from, from Isaiah that we heard this morning. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. It will dovetail into that thought very nicely, I think. The thought I want to share with you this morning is a thought about two portraits, two portraits and the disciple whom Jesus loved. If you've been a Christian like five minutes, usually you get to know pretty quickly that the disciple whom Jesus loved was the Apostle John. It's the Apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And, and he, he says it himself in, in, in the book of John. He writes it of himself. And in true ancient Near East style, he leans on Jesus' chest in, that, in those days where it was very common to, for men to link arms and and, and embrace and kiss on the cheek and all of those sorts of things. In, in that true style, he leans on Jesus' chest or shoulder and he says in John chapter 13, there was a disciple, he's talking about the Last Supper, there was a disciple leaning on Jesus' chest and it was the disciple whom Jesus loved. And we read that and we have a little snicker, a little smile and we say, even if he does say so himself. You know, even if he does say so himself. You know, very, very confident, aren't you, John? <laughs> Pretty confident. Or we can lean in and we can look a bit closer and find out that there's something else going on here. There's something else at play in John's life. There's something else happening. There's something of John that tells us there's a place of contentment. There's a place of inner knowing. There's a place of confidence and resolve. There's a place in John, when you look closely, where you realise not only could he say of himself, I can love completely, but he could say, I can receive love completely in return. It's something that John acquired. But this had been a long journey. This didn't happen overnight for John. It was long. He'd, he'd had a very long journey. And like you and I, John had two portraits that we can look at in his life. Two portraits. There hangs in the Canadian School of Missions in Toronto. Two portraits. Two portraits. They were painted in 1903 and 1904 by a very celebrated painter called J.W.L. Forster. Forster was a very famous painter. He painted generals and heads of state and kings and queens. He painted Queen Victoria, her, her jubilee and her whole family. He was the only European painter who was invited to paint the emperor and empress of Japan. He painted Charles and James Wesley and their mother Susanna. He painted um, Wesley Booth uh, of, of the Salvation Army. He, he was a very celebrated painter, but it's these two paintings in the Canadian School of Missions in Toronto that catch my attention because they are little known and little documented paintings. The first one, painted in 1903, is of Miss Smart. She was a young art student and she agreed to be the, the, 
the, the subject of Forster's portrait. And she sat for his portrait, and it's a dark painting, very dark. And Miss Smart looks, she looks a little lost. She's surrounded by images and, and, and quite bizarre images, like a, a, a crystal gazer's ball, for instance. She looks like she's in some sort of maze and can't find her way out. But there's a defiance in Miss Smart's eyes that sort of says when you look at the painting, if I wanted your help, I'd ask for it. You know that sort of look? Yeah. yeah. That's the first painting, 1903. And the, the painting is entitled Perplexed. Then there's another painting next to it. And it was painted a year later in 1904, and it's entitled Faith. In this painting, the woman is, is dressed in white. She's surrounded by light and everything that speaks of life around her, nature and movement and some sense of purpose. And you look in the eyes of this woman and you think, wow, is this the same woman? And you read the caption in the painting. It's entitled Faith, and it says this is the same woman painted one year later. Miss Smart sat for Forster twice. The first painting perplexed, the second painting faith. She had come to know Jesus in that time. She'd come into a, a personal understanding of who Jesus was and gained a sense of purpose, and it looks like she's found her way back to the eternal reality. You look in her, her eye, everything, everything looks different. There's a resemblance of skin and hair, but you look in her eyes and you, something tells you she could not have done this on her own. Something tells you that a journey has taken place for these two paintings to be so radically different of the same person. And you know what? It's the same for you and I. It's the same for you and I. We have two portraits, and so did the Apostle John. Two portraits, one woman. Two portraits, one man. The second portrait of John is the portrait you and I are most familiar with. We see John and we see the, this beautiful pastor. He's the apostle of love, they called him. He's this wonderful, gentle, pastoral, caring man. And we see this, this pleasing portrait that we know so well of him. We assume that John was always like this. He could have sat that portrait when he was 15, when they think they know everything. John was perfect. He's just wonderful apostle of love. The other disciples, well, yeah, it's easy to see they had two portraits. Like you look at Peter, this, this, this you know, the, what are the blood-sucking Romans ever done for us? And, and, you know, he would act first and think later and then deny Jesus. And of course, Peter had two portraits. We can see that. That's easy. How about Mark? Well, he piked out on one of Paul's missionary journeys, young, immature, like, yeah, Mark had two portraits. We can see that really easily. How about Matthew? Mm-hmm. Tax collector. You know about those in those days, hated by their own. They were Modern-day theologians call Matthew a quisling. That term was coined in, the, in Nazi Germany when the, when, when, the, when the Jews were dobbing in their own brothers and sisters into the Nazi government. They were called quislings. And modern theologians say Matthew would have been like one of them. Hated. Well, of course he had two portraits. We can see that. Even Paul, the Apostle Paul, two portraits? Absolutely. Christ-hating, Christian-killing Pharisee turned incredible church planter and minister of Christ. Yeah, he had two portraits, but John? Nah. Perfect. Wasn't he always like that? Aren't there people in our world that we look at them and think, perfect. Always been that way. You know, I'll never measure up to that. 
John was perfect, wasn't he? Well, the Bible tells us something really different. The Bible tells us that John was not always like that. He also had two portraits. The thing is, he had an incredible journey with Jesus when he wrote that fourth gospel. We're going to have a look at this, these two portraits of John. Not so that we can look at it and justify our own shortcomings. Not that we can look at it and go, yeah, see, John failed too, so you know I mustn't be so bad. Not, not to do that. Not to find fault in the story, but to find ourselves in the story. Because if we can find ourselves in the story, we can also find the link and the keys to moving into this incredible second portrait that was painted of John and the incredible second portrait that is available for us that we also walk into. We will find the keys to that if we look at the stories. But to do that, we've got to look at the other Gospels. Because if you want to find out something about someone, ask the people that they live with. <laughs> ask the people they work with. They're going to tell you a thing or two. You've got to ask other people if you want to find out what's going on. What we find out about John... Number one, there's a few things I looked at and found out about John. And the first thing I, I noticed when I'm reading about his young life is that he was immature and impetuous. Immature and impetuous. You see, John and his twin brother James were successful fishermen, but they weren't self-made men. Their old man was really wealthy. Zebedee owned the company. Zebedee had, had uh, connections all through the empire, including the, the high priest. And if you want to get ahead as a Jewish male in those days, you're going to have the high priest as a connection. That was a good thing. It also tells us that they hired servants. So it tells us that they came from a very wealthy family. They had money, friends, influence, and options. Many young men with money, influence, and options become young radicals. They are a bit restless. They get a bit angry and Restless with the status quo and they, they muck up just because they can. You know, they want to give the empire a run for their money. And James and John were out to do that. It could have quite possibly been the reason they followed Jesus in the first place. Young radicals. Jesus looks a bit different. He's going to stick it to the empire. Let's follow him. Could have been that. Could have been that. You know, not everyone starts out with the purest of emotions, of, 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 of convictions, um, not all of us start out with the, the purest of motives. We just heard an example this morning. Sometimes we've got to examine our own motives. How about the prodigal son? Did he come home because he had a deep-seated conviction that he'd hurt his father? Did he come home because he thought, you know, for me to say, Dad, I want my money now was the equivalent of saying, Dad, you're dead to me. Give me my dough. I'm taking off. Yeah. You know, did he come home because he had this deep-seated sense of regret, remorse? No. He ran out of options, money connections, friends, and food. And that prompted him to go home. But the thing is, that never disqualifies us from the second portrait. He came home with the wrong motives. It doesn't seem to matter to God. The fact is he came home and then a second portrait was written and he had a fresh beginning. He had a new chance at life because he actually went home. So we often, we often look at the motives and go, yeah, but let's write them off. No, 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 no. So many people come with the wrong, wrong motives, but they end up having a second portrait painted anyway. Who knows, um, Hillsong United Music, putting out some fabulous stuff at the moment. One of their lead guitarists and singers, Jad Gillies, brilliant singer and guitarist. You know what? He was the son of a single mum, just mucked up at the back of church, just called ruck caused ruckus, um, uh, always getting into trouble. 
just mucked up constantly, never came into church, just mucking around outside, causing disturbance and whatever. Till one day someone said, Jad, you play guitar, don't you? Yeah. Why don't you come play for us this morning? Rest is history. You know, someone, someone gave him an opportunity to rewrite his life rather than write him off. And he came in. The rest is history. He's one of the most prolific songwriters and lead guitarists and singers. You know, Jad Gillies had an opportunity for a second portrait to be written because someone didn't write him off. I really love that. I love that. You know, even David fighting Goliath, you know, he went in and we go, David, hero from the beginning. What a, what a great young man. Wish my son was like David. You know, even young, he did what his father asked him to. Fought a giant, became a hero. Really young kid, wish my son was like that. You know what David did when he went to fight Goliath? Three times he asked, tell me what the reward is for the one who beats the giant. Tell me what the reward is. And you know what they said to him? Well, you get to marry the king's daughter. You get to live in a tax-free haven. You get to have full access to the palace. Life will be made in the shade. Doesn't sound too bad. Then again, he goes up to someone, hey, can you tell me? What's the reward for the one who beats the giant? Get to marry the king's daughter, live in a tax-free haven, made in the shade, get to live in the palace. And like, okay, do you think t- twice was enough? No, no, no. He said it again. Tell me about the reward that the man gets for three times he asked. You know, we don't always start out with the right motives, but that doesn't write us off. God never writes anybody off. God says, come on, whatever your motive is, come on. Come on. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness can't comprehend it or snuff it out, so a bad motive can't. So come on, bring them all in. Sometimes we don't start out with the wrong motives, with the right motives, and John certainly seemed to not have had the right motives to begin with. And the second thing about John is that we find that he was ambitious and insecure. In Matthew 20, in Matthew 20, there's a portrait that shows a really ambitious face. Sadly, not one of a crusader, but one who seems to be so intent on getting on the inside of the circle. You know, he, he can't stand to be out. He, he doesn't want to be out looking in. He wants to be in. He wants to be in on the inner circle. The disciples, despite all they had seen Jesus do, despite all they'd seen him say and teach about, they still thought of him as a political messiah. They still thought of him as coming in and setting up a kingdom and kicking out the Romans and establishing and inaugurating his kingdom and John watched this and it made his mouth water with ambition. Maybe this was his chance to make it in the empire. Maybe this was his chance at promotion. One day on the road to Jerusalem, John and his brother James came up to Jesus and they said to him, Teacher, will you do something for us? Just just stop here for a moment. Just imagine this. Here's the picture. This is God with them. Maker of heaven and earth. Sovereign Lord, manifest with them. Jesus. And James and John come up to him. Sovereign God, maker of heaven, master, Lord, do us a little favour, will you? Do us a little favour. Not a biggie. Just that when you come into your kingdom, can you know one of us sit on your right and one of us sit on your left? You know, not, not, not a big deal, but just wondering. Just wondering. It's like, really? Really? You know, Matthew records the story a little differently. Matthew records a detail that Mark doesn't record. This is what Matthew says. Matthew says, on the road to Jerusalem, the sons, uh, the mother of Zebedee's sons, in other words, John and James' mother, comes up to Jesus and asks that question to him. Mummy's boys, get mum to do the dirty work for you. Goodness, they were immature 
and they were impetuous and they were ambitious and they were a little bit insecure. You know, I can just imagine the scene, having asked that question, the other disciples milling around, all coming in, all jostling for preferment, all indignant at these two little opportunists who muscled their way in and squeezed everyone else out. It's like, what is going on here? You know Jesus' response to them? Jesus' response in Mark 10 was this beautiful response. And you know the response. He says to them, the other nations have rulers and they love to show their power and authority over people, but it should not be that way amongst you. It should not be that way amongst you. To get to the top, you need to learn to dwell at the bottom. To be able to be top dog in this organisation, you have to learn to serve like a slave. You have to, and then he picks up a little child and puts, it, puts the child on his knee and says, you know, you, 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 you want preferment? You, you want to know who is the top here? It, it's, it's this, if you can become like one of these little children, you've made it. You've made it. Jesus was so gentle and so loving and so wise. And, and he says, you must learn to serve. And what I see here is that the brush strokes of John's second portrait were being painted as these things were happening. The brush strokes were already at work on John's life as these things were happening. The th third thing we see about John is that he was intolerant, really intolerant. And the question I had to ask myself is, how inclusive am I? Am I inclusive or exclusive? You know, John was very intolerant of people who were different from himself. There are only two ways to do life, John's way and the wrong way. <laughs> you know, they, they, they were, um, they were um, milling around one day and Jesus had just finished a discourse about who is the greatest in the kingdom. Like a little child, he was telling them. And John sees a man in the distance. And the man is doing something of good. The man is performing something that will bring a good outcome to another person. The man is providing some healing from a man in the distance. And John looks at him, doesn't recognize him. He's not on the in group. And so he comes to Jesus. He says, Jesus, we saw a man doing these works over here, but he didn't pray like we prayed. He didn't use the same words as we use. He didn't go to the same synagogue that we go to. He didn't use the same formula that we use. So you'll be happy to know, Jesus, I kicked him out. I told him to get lost. Don't even think about it. It's wrong. I told him to get out. And Jesus so very patiently looks at him and says, John, if it's not against us, they're for us. How patient was Jesus? The brush strokes over John's life were continuing as John was growing. The second portrait was being painted. And the fourth thing we understand about John is that he had a temper. You know, behind that intolerant expression was a smouldering temper ready to burst into flame at any moment. Jesus even gave James and John a nickname. Jesus called them Boanerges. Don't you love that word? Boanerges. Boanerges. It's <laughs> such a cool word. <laughs> and you know what it means? It means sons of thunder. You know who was the Greek god? The, the top Greek god in, in the Roman Empire was, was Zeus, called the god of thunder, and lightning and weather and power. And so for Jesus to call James and John Boanerges, he was calling them sons of thunder. So in other words, he was going, who do you think you are, the sons of Zeus? 
Like it was a bit of a joke. Like I think the other disciples would have laughed. Who do you think you are, James and John's the son of Zeus? Like, and they would have had a bit of a laugh, I think, because John had a temper. You know, one day that they were, they were about to walk into a village and um, it was a, a Samaritan village and they were refused entrance. They were refused entrance. And John raged with this. He was, he was furious that they were refusing. After all the nice things Jesus has said about Samaritans, after all the good things that he's done for them, after all the illustrations he's used with Samaritans in them to exonerate them and lift them up, they do this to us. They refuse us entrance into their village. John looks at Jesus and he says, why don't you call down fire from heaven and just wipe them out? No, 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 no. One thing better. Why don't you call down fire from heaven and wipe out the whole village? Just take them all out. That'll teach him. Yeah. It's like, that was John. And Jesus looks at them and uh, calmly rebukes them and moves on. And the brush strokes continue on. on John's life. The brush strokes continue. Can you see the grace of Jesus? Yeah. Can you see his consistency? Can you see that he never disqualifies anyone? Can you see that he never writes anyone off? There's hope for you and I, isn't there? <laughs> he consistently allows people to sit for their second portrait continuously. After looking at this portrait, you know, you've got to wonder, how on earth could this man have been remembered as the disciple whom Jesus loved? How on earth? Well, I guess the question is not whether the disciple whom Jesus loved could have written that beautiful fourth gospel we know as the gospel of John, but whether the man we've just been looking at could have written that. And the answer is a resounding no. The man we've just been looking at could never have written that fourth gospel. Not ever. So it says to us, something must have happened. There must have been a journey. There must have been a second portrait. Something's happened that enabled that man to become the man who wrote the gospel of love, the gospel of John. There must be a second portrait. If the first one was entitled Belonging to Earth, the second one surely must be entitled Belonging to Heaven. Surely. Interestingly, John's the only one who says about Jesus' words, my kingdom is not of this world. He's the only one who write, wrote that. In the two portraits, there's a resemblance we see of John, but there's something like in Miss Smart, there's something in John's eyes that sort of tells us he couldn't have done this on his own. Something's happened. There's a key to the transformation that happened. And we look at John's life and we think journeying has taken place. When so many others left Jesus, John remained. John remained. One of the keys to John's second portrait lies in what he wrote. And here's some clues for us. Only John tells us some things. Only John tells us of the risen Christ's appearance to Mary. This tells me something of relationship. Only John tells about the conversation with Nicodemus who wanted to know what it was like to be born again because John himself needed to be born again. Yeah. Only John tells us the interview with Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Why? Because John had to deal with his own prejudices. John recalls that. Only John talks to us about the personality of Thomas. Why? 
because John knew what it was like to doubt. He had to deal with that himself. Only John talks about the intimate conversation with Nathaniel, where Jesus said of Nathaniel, I saw you sitting under the fig tree before I even met you. And John records that, I reckon, because John so needed to know that he was known and loved. So many details that John records that no one else does that tells us something about what happened in John's life. And John was only one of three who shared some of Jesus' most intimate moments, like the raising of Jairus' daughter, seeing his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration before Jesus left this earth, his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. John writes about all of these occasions, and then perhaps the most profound of them all was when Jesus is hanging on the cross in his last dying moments, and he looks down from the cross, and he looks at John, and he says, John, here is your mother. And he says to his mother, mother, here is your son. Jesus commends to John, the one who was the most dear and precious to him in this life. And he commends to John. And that day, John knew he was trusted. He knew he was included. And he knew he was loved. He knew he was loved. You know, John had been sitting for a portrait he didn't even know he was the subject of. (laughs) He was sitting for a portrait he didn't even know he was the subject of. And then he starts to record the words which gives us the keys. He puts the journey into words and he sums it up like this. In John 15, 1 to 10, he talks about the conversation Jesus had about remaining. And he starts by saying, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in you, remain in me, and I remain in you. And then nine times Jesus uses the word remain. Isn't it interesting that John recorded this? Remain, 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 remain. John learned how to remain. John learned how to remain. You know, I shared with the girls yesterday that some of the hardest things we have to do in our life is remain. You know, in my life, I experienced a crisis in my life. We're generational Christians. Surely that doesn't happen to us. You know, I'd served the Lord all my life. Surely I'm immune from crisis. Surely. But however we were born, whoever we were born to and what circumstances we were born in, All of us at some point are subject to things outside of our control and things that come against us or come out of left field and none of us have immunity from those things. And at 12 years of age, God visited me with a dream that spelled out some of the things that we would call a call of God on our life. Without going into the details of this this morning, it was a call that I knew because I knew because I knew because I knew. But the circumstances of my life led me down paths where I knew it was coming, I knew it was coming, I knew it was coming, but every time I thought I was on the verge of it, circumstances stepped in. And I I kept that dream alive in my heart until a crisis hit my life and, and I found it very hard to not think that that flame had been snuffed out. Those were the hardest days in my life to remain. You know, when I... I When your husband of 17 years leaves you for somebody else, there's a crisis right there. That's an understatement to say it's a crisis. That's a a complete understatement. My whole world had fallen apart at that point. And the hardest thing 
for someone when everything goes against your framework of theology and your framework of belief, when everything is opposite to that, when everything in life says something different to that, the hardest thing for us to to do is just to remain. My dad used to say, never doubt in the dark what you knew to be true in the light. Never doubt in the dark what you knew to be true in the light. We've got to hang on to that. We've got to remain. It's hard, but we've got to remain. John learned how to remain. When we remain, we can produce something of legacy that helps some others paint their second portrait. When we remain, our second portrait is painted and we leave legacies for others to enable them to have their second portrait painted. I love the way Max Licardo introduces the book of John in the Max Licardo devotional Bible. I'm going to read it to you. Because this is the second portrait. This is, this is the result of remaining. And this is the legacy that comes from remaining. This is how Max Licardo introduces John in the devotional Bible. He's an old man, this one who sits on the stool and leans against the wall. His eyes are closed and his face is soft. Were it not for his hand stroking his beard, you'd think he was asleep. Some in the room assume that he is. John does this often during worship. As the people sing, his eyes will close and his chin will fall until it rests on his chest. And there he will remain, motionless and silent. Those who know him well know better. They know he's not resting. He's traveling. Atop the music, he journeys back, back, back until he is young again, strong again, and there again. There on the seashore with James and the apostles. There on the trail with the disciples and the women. There in the temple with Caiaphas and the accusers. It's been 60 years, but John still sees. The decades took John's strength, but they didn't take his memory. The years dulled his sight, but they didn't dull his vision. The seasons may have wrinkled his face, but they didn't soften his love. He had been with God, and God had been with him. How could he ever forget The wine that moments before had been watered, John could still taste it. The mud placed on the eyes of the blind man in Jerusalem, John could still remember it. The aroma of Mary's perfume as it filled the room, John could still smell it. And the voice, ah, that voice, his voice, John could still hear it. I am the light of the world, it rang. I am the door, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. I will come back, it promised, and take you to be with me. And those who believe in me, it assured, will have life even if they die. John could still hear him. John could see him. Scenes had been branded on John's heart. Words had been seared into John's soul. A work of art had been completed. John could never forget. How could he? He'd been there. He remained. He opened his eyes and he blinks. The singing now has stopped and the teaching has begun. And John looks at the listeners and the listeners look to the teacher. But John thinks if only they could have been there, he thinks. If only the teacher could have been there, but he wasn't. In fact, most in the room weren't. Most weren't even born. And most who were there are now dead. Peter is, so is James, Nathaniel, Martha, Philip. They're all gone. Even Paul, the one who came late, he's dead. Only John remains. He looks again at the church. It's small, but it's earnest. And they lean forward to hear the teacher. John listens to him. What a task. Speaking of one he never saw. Explaining words he never heard for himself. But John is there if the teacher needs him. 
But what will happen when John is gone? What will the teacher do then when John's voice is silent and his tongue is stilled? Who will tell them how Jesus silenced the waves? Will they hear that he fed the thousands? Will they remember how he prayed for unity? How will they know if only they could have been there too? And suddenly, in John's heart, he knows what to do. And so later, under, under the light of a sunlit shaft, the old fisherman unfolds the scroll and begins to write the story of his life. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The fourth gospel of John, the legacy of John, his second portrait revealed. I love that. I love that. Every one of us are on a journey. Every one of us are having a second portrait painted. Mostly we're not even aware that we're sitting for this portrait. We're not even aware that we're the subjects of the great brushstrokes of grace across our life. Most of us are unaware that our children have these great brushstrokes of Jesus being painted over their lives. And perhaps some of you in here today have either written yourself off or written someone else off or written your children off because you only see your first portrait. And I believe this morning we are prompted and inspired and motivated and encouraged to remember that no one's written off in God's big story. Our stories are being written, not written off. There may be four first portraits, but the brushstrokes are painting a second one. And if we remain, remain, remain in community with one another, this community is important for you. Remaining in community, believing in the dark what you knew to be true in the light, remaining, understanding that the brushstrokes are still at work. Don't write yourself off or your children or your family or your friends, because the great brushstrokes of Christ are still being painted. And I love that. And those brushstrokes enable a second portrait to leave a legacy. So you breathe your life into your children, and them into their children, and them into their children, and them into their children. Before we know it, we're living in a massive kingdom of light, and the, the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot quench it. Because you and I remained. You and I allowed the portrait to be completed in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. 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 Why, don't you, why don't we stand together and just seal this moment together? Because I believe it's a, it's a great thought to take home with us and to take into a new week that Christ is painting a new picture of us. You know, perhaps there are people in your world that need to shape up, measure up, or smarten up. <laughs> We've all got those, hey? Perhaps as children, and I can speak from first-hand experience. You had a child where all you can see for a while is a first portrait. And it's discouraging. And it's the last thing I used to think of every night I went to sleep and the first thing I'd think of when I woke up in the morning. And it hung over me like a, like a, like a cloud. All I could see was a first portrait until I was prompted by the Holy Spirit Put aside the first portrait I've been painting all these years. You just couldn't see it. The second portrait's about to emerge. Don't write him off. His life's just being rewritten. Don't write him off. Perhaps that's you this morning. Perhaps you've judged yourself or someone else by a first portrait, by shortcomings and things that are not completed. Or perhaps like John and perhaps even like me, 
things didn't shape up or turn out the way you thought they would in life, it's not done. It's not finished. It's continuing. Perhaps for you, the hardest thing is to remain. So my encouragement is, and the encouragement from John himself this morning is remain, remain, remain. Let's pray this morning. Lord God, I thank you that our beginnings, our shortcomings, our first portraits don't disqualify us or anybody else. That we are in this wonderful, wonderful life that's a, that, 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 that is in the presence of the breath of God himself. That life surrounds us at, at, at every point, at every turn. Life, the life of God surrounds us. And this morning, Father, I really believe, Holy Spirit, thank you, thank you, thank you. This morning, I believe that some are turning from shame to grace right now. That there are people here that are turning from judgment to acceptance right now. That there are people turning from insecurity to contentment right now. There are people moving from, I don't know if I was in, included, loved or trusted, to to coming to that place where they could say like John could, I am the disciple, I am the man, I am the woman whom Jesus loves. There are people turning from hopelessness to being hope-filled this morning. People turning from coming out of the margins of life, the margins of this faith community into the centre again of their faith, into the centre again of this community. People are moving from faith, from fear, back to faith this morning. Lord God, I thank you that second portraits are becoming very obvious and clear to people this morning. Holy Spirit, I thank you. I thank you. As we keep our eyes closed this morning, just in these last moments, there is a phenomenon. It's a scientific phenomenon that when you place a piece of iron in the presence of an electrified body, that piece of iron will become electrified. It takes on the characteristics and and properties of the electrified body. So that piece of iron becomes a temporary magnet for as long as it remains close to the electrified body. You know, I want to say that that's what John did and that's what we're being encouraged to do this morning. John stayed close to the magnetic field of Jesus and the characteristics of Jesus became John's characteristics. The properties that Jesus had, John shared. John became like Jesus for as long as he remained in the presence of Jesus. And you and I can paint those second portraits when we remain in the magnetic presence of Jesus, remain in the community of faith, remain in the things you know to be true, remain in his presence. Lord, I thank you that you see us through the second portrait eyes. Now, Father, help us to see ourselves through those eyes and help us also to judge others through their second portrait this week and in the years to come so that we too, like John, will leave a legacy for our children and their children and their children and the kingdom of light will be established here on earth through us remaining. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Wonderful. I'd encourage you to take and listen to that one again. Just to dwell in the thoughts and the reality. And you know, today you might see yourself as this, but I want to tell you there is another.